0: Welcome back to a very special episode on Sapiens Playground. My name is Maxim and I'm a medical student from Berlin and today I have Rob Wolf on the show who many of you should be familiar with. For like absolutely incomprehensible reasons I somehow managed to invite Rob Wolf on my podcast and it was not only a big honor but also an enlightening experience and a great pleasure to have him on the show and dive as deep as we've possibly could manage in a little bit more than an hour into the ethical, environmental, and nutritional concerns with respect to animal products, and meat in particular, which he, together with Diana Rogers, so elegantly and comprehensively addressed and dissected in their most recent book and documentary, Sacred Cow. It's hard to overstate how much I learned in today's conversation with special emphasis on the fact that it helped me apprehend even more thoroughly the incomprehensible complexity of the issue, as well as the appalling realization how much arrogance and lack of appreciation for our limitless ignorance is driving the whole environmentalist movements and many of the policies surrounding animal farming, ecosystems, and agriculture in general. So I'm sure this is going to be a valuable resource for many of you. Share it around if you liked it. Please enjoy listening. Here is Rob Wolf. Good what good morning Is it morning for you mor- morning for me yeah yeah awesome good morning dr Rob wolf it's it's awesome to have you on there, no doctor here
1: I, I pulled the pulled the plug on medical school so just uh just a bachelor's degree from a state school but honored to be here
0: yeah it's it's I, I don't know how I managed to get you on you know sometimes I wonder how I managed to get certain guests on like I had people like <laughs> Peter McCullough on the show and I don't know how I managed that. oh nice yeah I had him on the show. I listened to him on Rogan, you know and I was like, It'd be super nice to have McCullough on on my podcast, but like, he he he'll certainly have like he's so popular he, he has so many followers like I'm sure he's not going to be able to reply, and but you know somehow I managed to do that so same for you.
1: Fantastic. Well, when you have an important message, you kind of want to get it out to the folks. Really? So, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah.
0: That's true. And I wanted to yeah. discuss a lot of interesting things today with you. So um, we're already recording, by the way, so I just started the right. recording button before you entered the room. And again, before we dive in, because I presume we have like around about an hour, is that right? It, about that. If we bleed over a little bit, we'll be okay, but right around Fine. there. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So before we dive into all the questions, and just want to let you know that I want I want primarily to focus on your work with regards to animal agriculture and the impact on environment and climate change. Because that's a very controversial right. topic that's very heated, very emotional. And it's like me personally, looking looking at the agenda right now that's going on, I, I'm very, what would you say? I'm very concerned about what's going on. Like I can tell you a quick story as a starter. Um, recently, I heard in the news that there is a German city called Freiburg, which mandated... Uh, what you say that banned the um, banned animal foods not animal foods sorry meat and fish so it only provides vegetarian meals for kindergartens and elementary schools and I was honestly shocked by that message for two reasons primarily first of all I don't think that banning meat and fish is a good idea for children and second is because I don't like the idea of government compelling us and telling us what to eat I think that's a very bad very bad move
1: we are on the same page with that. Yeah. Yeah. We seem to be in a bit, maybe not a minority. Like the, the, the interesting thing is it, it seems like a insurmountable hill to climb, but I think uh, there's some very loud elements to the media and social media that support these ideas as being good. But I, mm. I think that the vast majority of people actually see the, the hole in, in both sides of that, that uh, kids are probably not well-served by pulling nutrient dense foods out of their system and right. that uh, it's probably not a good idea for for the government to pick winners and losers on the nutrition front. So,
0: yeah. Well, absolutely. And I mean, I also I also like to extend the argument. Like if we think what if we what if we start what the government starts telling us what we should do, what we should eat, let's say, then that's just a starting point. Then how 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 good right. how could that develop? And I don't believe that the development will will be positive. I'm definitely not convinced by that because we have we have things like that happening in other countries we have historical examples so whenever whenever the the I don't know the government becomes poss- possessed by the idea that they have all the answers then it be- immediately becomes tyrannical which is really not good you know we have to right. we have to understand when 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 this is happening right awesome so be- before we start maybe first like quickly introduce yourself Tell us your background. Tell us where you're from. Tell us um, what 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 you're doing. Tell us about your work, because there are lots of stuff yeah. about you that people should know. I think, although I believe Gosh, that, that that although I believe that many of the people that that follow me also know you perfectly well. So,
1: great, great. I'll try to keep it brief. But I, I was a biochemist by training. Was in track to do either a md or a phd kind of process looking at cancer and autoimmunity research and this was 20 24 plus years ago that i, I became quite ill i developed mm. ulcerative colitis bad enough that uh i was facing a bowel resection and immunosuppressant drugs the rest of my life and i knew enough about that process at the time that it, it, it's pretty terrible outcomes like it, it's just not very favorable and it's kind of a long story how this mm-hmm. kind of ancestral health model got on my radar. But mm-hmm. I, when I was poking around it, I, I found some material that suggested that, uh, the, the high carb, low fat vegan diet that I was eating at the time might not be a good fit for me. And I, <laughs> I think it works for some folks rather wonderfully for me. It was a disaster. Mm. Um, I, I, it, and there were other pieces to it. I wasn't sleeping enough. Um, I was a typical grad student, you know, like you'll sleep when you're dead. So I'd sleep three or four hours a night. So typical Uh, unhealthy user bias. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I I don't want to hang it all just on the, the vegan diet. Like when I look back, it was like there wasn't hardly anything that I was doing right. I ended up getting my vitamin D checked eventually around that time. And it was like 12. Like (laughs) I I was barely above the level of having rickets. So, I mean, there was, it was a lot not good. And when you think about, um, mitigating autoimmune issues, like poor vitamin D status is this massive risk factor and everything. So, I mean, you know, on and on and on, but, uh, I, I, I'm about. uh, I'm five foot nine, 165 pounds. uh, At the low web of my ulcerative colitis, I was 125, 130
0: pounds. Wow, I was was
1: really. I'm not a big guy.
0: So, uh, you know, uh, your story sounds very similar to Nick Norwitz, to the story of Nick Norwitz. You familiar with him? Probably are. Yeah, I I right, right. I talked to him. I talked to him on my podcast a couple couple months ago, and. Um, I, I really wonder how that works with, with ulcerative, ulcerative colitis because it seems to be something where many people find relief y- utilizing a ketogenic diet. I, I believe that, that that will be your next point.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and that was kind of the, the direction that I went. I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, ancestral, low-carb, ketogenic-type diet. And for me, it was life-saving. Mm-hmm. And it was so profound that it made me not really want to finish medical school because I just couldn't wrap my head around another four years of standard medical school, then residency, mainly learning about pathology and disease when I True. mainly wanted to work with people about their movement, sleep, you know, and, and kind of ancestrally appropriate mm-hmm. diet. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but it was right around this this time that I was casting around online and I found this weird workout called CrossFit. And I started checking that out. And my friend Dave Warner and I, who uh, Dave's a retired Navy SEAL, he and I started working out together. And within about, I don't know, five months, six months, we had 15 or 20 people working out with us in his garage gym. And so we reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit, and basically said, Hey, we want to open a gym. We want to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they Mm -hmm. said, yes. And that was the first crossfit affiliate gym in the world and then i had a chance to move back to chico california where i did my undergrad and i opened up what was then the fourth crossfit affiliate gym in the world crossfit norcal wow and that allowed me to work with just thousands of people i worked on the hq staff for a number of years traveled all over the world uh you know doing seminars working with folks and what I learned out of that it allowed me to write two New York Times best-selling books, and eventually uh, also kind of led into Sacred Cow, which is the the book that looks at the um, the ethical, environmental, and health considerations of a meat-inclusive food system, which right. I think is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Definitely. But you know, mm-hmm. that's uh, a a twenty-three going on twenty-four year overview of of what I've been up to in this wow. health and
0: wellness space. So um, I believe this is also where your uh, your motivation to open up, like open your company, element element came from, right? Because um, uh, because many many people, um, for those for those who started a ketogenic diet are probably familiar with this issue, d- develop electrolyte imbalances. By the way, and one question I, I would also like to pose to you before we, there's another question I'd like to pose to you before we enter the discussion talking about the environment impact. But first, um, tell us maybe about your, your company because, and, and how this relates to your ketogenic diet journey? Sure, sure. I, I've i eaten a low carb diet again for 23
1: years, have tinkered with different ways of incorporating more, more carbs because I, I do Brazilian jitsu. I'm a brown belt in Brazilian jujitsu. Mm. I, I have done more high intensity, you know, uh, training in the past and a low carb diet doesn't facilitate that type of activity, ideally, you know, I mean, you right. can do it, but those are still kind of glycogen dependent sports, but it's interesting if one of the the additional confounders when one is in a low carb state mm. is we enter this state called the, uh, the naturesis of fasting, the loss of, right. of sodium while insulin signaling. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew about this and I thought I was taking care of my sodium. You know, I really vigorously salted my food and wasn't afraid of, you know, like pickles and olives and stuff like that. But uh, I I was clearly under consuming sodium. Like some friends of mine who are really good at the the coaching side of this just had me record everything I consumed for a couple of days in chronometer. And Mm -hmm. they wanted me at at least five grams of sodium per day. And I was barely getting two. So I was woefully under what I, I needed wow. in electrolytes. And so they said, hey, are you going to work out today? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm lifting weights today. They're like, okay, <laughs> get six ounces of pickle juice and just like shoot that down about 20 <laughs> minutes before you work out. And I did. And it was the best training session I had had in like 15 years. Wow. It was crazy. Like I, I got it, a positive. It make a big, big really on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so – these guys knew that um, element was really important or not element, but electrolytes were really important. I became aware of how critically important it was. And so what we did is we put together a free downloadable guide. It was how to make your own keto aid, basically like Mm. this much sodium chloride, this much potassium chloride, magnesium, stevia, lemon juice, shake it up and, and go. Mm. And we didn't use it as lead magnet or anything. We just wanted people to know about it, and within about six months, we had a half million downloads of this thing. Wow! And it was awesome, and people were really getting great responses from it. But we had people reaching out saying, "Hey, love the keto aid, but it sucks when I travel because TSA doesn't like three bags of white powder in my carry-on bag, you know." And so, <laughs> have you guys ever thought about like some sort of a convenience thing? And That was really the whole genesis of this was doing this freemium product, you Mm. know, giving giving away basically the formula for what we were doing and then trying to make a convenient product for people to take to the gym and just take with them. And uh, we want launched just a little over three years ago now. Mm. And I think Element is one of the fastest growing Health and wellness companies in the hip world right now, like it's really just going, going like gangbusters. So we're very, very lucky, and it's been a, been a cool experience so far.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And the way you laid out the history of the development of, of Element also shows me that you didn't just, um, you didn't just came up with a crazy idea, try, tried to monetize it, to capitalize on it, but you, you actually listened to what the people were asking for. And I mean, that's, that's where you actually can, uh, can create the greatest amount of change. And have the greatest impact yep. if you actually listen and pay attention to what people are looking for and then you pick pick that up and t- you try to 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 create something that generates income for you while helping other people i mean like win-win win-win-win you know there's nothing b- bad about it
1: yeah it, it's uh it's devilishly hard to find those areas where and uh fantastical story about like your proprietary blend of whatever and right. it, you know it's it, it it is the the huge opportunity is to find that 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 like uh, blue ocean opportunity in mm. in an area that usually looks like it's really saturated and we were honestly just lucky that i think that we took uh we had built a lot of credibility and trust within the ketogenic diet community over time um, had mm. not like gone to the well, a bunch with trying to like pander to people, you know, uh, selling them stuff. And then we just, I, I, I looked at this when we did the formulation, I looked at, at the physiology of, of electrolytes with really a fresh set of eyes. And when I, I remembered a lot of it from medical school, but I, I didn't, mm. a, a refresher was good. And I would, and then when I looked at like the, the, when we sweat, if you lose like a half kilo, kilo of, of, of sweat, you you lose about a gram of sodium with mm. it and i was like holy shit that's a lot you know yeah. and and when you consider that like a a, a medium sized person can lose 3 4 kilos of of sweat in the course of a hard training session mm-hmm. sometimes more and how much sodium they would lose you know associated with that it was like how are these electrolyte products helping people like they're super underpowered in in sodium and a maybe too much magnesium, too much potassium, you know, other issues, but really mm-hmm. fundamentally too little sodium. So it was interesting that, uh, we went in and looked at this with a really fresh set of eyes, just uh, kind of red engineering style instead of an assumption about, we understood the physiology and any concerns around, um, say like hypertension and sodium, which I, I understood well that the hypertension story is really about insulin resistance. True. Not, not specifically sodium. You know? I mean, it's so, so interesting. Yeah, we I...
0: we recently had um, like I'm, also, I'm I'm a medical student right now, and we had kidney module in fourth semester, and you know many pieces came together when I when I learned about insulin signaling at the level of the kidney, um, which is basically to say that insulin activates the sodium basically all of the sodium transporters in the kidney, especially the sodium potassium channel, and the interesting yep. thing thing about that. Is basically if you're in a very low sodium state, you, you you well two things happen. One thing is that sodium-potassium channel doesn't get activated. You have more sodium ending up in the urine and more potassium ending up like staying in the blood. So that's like mm-hmm. did you mm-hmm. did you hear about Paul Saladino discussing his reasons why he quit keto, and one of them was basically that he was suffering from heart palpitations. And I think yep. this can yep. be related to to some latent hyperpotasemia, if that's the term. So a two, 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 an increased potassium level in his blood that could, could lead to these heart palpitations because you have too little ins- insulin signaling. Yep. And if you have insulin yep. resistance and you have too much, well, you don't really have too much insulin signaling. It, it's interesting, right? Because it's different for each, what would you say, for different tissues. But it seems yep. to be that the insulin signaling remains at the level of the kidney and they keep extracting sodium and retaining it in the, in the bloodstream and that uh, draws water and then they end up with greater volume and hypertension. hypertension.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that integrated uh, renal physiology is fascinating stuff. And uh, Absolutely. Uh, 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 gosh, when you think about when people really get sick and die from like end of life stuff, um, acid base imbalance will take you out really quickly. Mm -hmm. Electrolyte imbalance is really quickly, you know, um, blood sugar is a big deal, but people can exist on a blood sugar continuum. That's really rather wide. I mean, it's terrible to have blood sugars in like the three and four hundreds. I think people feel awful, but surprisingly people can survive that. But Mm -hmm. like, If you had swings that dramatic in either pH or electrolytes, you're dead, you know? So those things are really tightly uh, regulated and clearly the kidneys are, you know, the prime mover. We get some of that action at the lungs, you know, dealing with bicarbonate and whatnot, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's so funny because it's such knuckle dragging physiology. It's like, oh, we did that in like first year or whatever, you know, and (laughs) and people kind of forget it, but it's, it's, um, it's shockingly important for exercise performance, uh, sleep, you know, heart rate variability score. One of the things that we see, um, time and time again with, with folks that are under fueled in sodium is that, uh, they don't sleep that well. Like Mm -hmm. they don't really get that suppression of cortisol in the evening and their heart rate variability kind of garbage and, and just even doing like some pickle juice or like a, uh, you know, uh, gram and a half of, of table salt to, to get about a half a gram of, of effective sodium, gram of effective sodium, mm. the person is, it's like, they're drugged. It's like you gave them, you know, benzodiazepine or something <laughs> like that. Like they're just out cold. Wow. They wake up and they're like, Oh my God, that was the best night of sleep I've had in ages. And it's just because we, we, you know, suppress that cortisol by, by getting, uh, adequate sodium in the mix. And yeah. you can get there. Um, not to keep jabbering like an idiot about this stuff, but just a minimally processed whole food diet whether it's paleo or vegan or what have you removes virtually all the sodium and even if it's a higher carb diet it tends to be a fairly low glycemic load diet Mm. so you can end up in a scenario especially if the person is training hard where they're very insulin sensitive relatively low uh uh, you know insulin load or glycemic load Mm. and that person may be in that that hyponatremic state they're not uh, True. consuming enough sodium to set up their you know kind of optimum. Yeah, even even if I'll they're not following yeah.
0: even if they're not following a low carb diet, interestingly enough, yep. right? Because yeah. if you if yeah. you stop consuming yeah. processed food, you tend to under consume sodium. Because like nowadays yes. most of the sodium is is hidden in the you know within the Processed food that most the people consume food. over there yeah, out there.
1: I, I think it's like 85% of yeah, sodium see? in Western countries is consumed in processed food. So like
0: to me yeah. personally, no yeah. wonder that there is a correlation between sodium and, and, and hypertension because it's like, I, I'm i not surprised that like if, if that could be explained almost entirely by the consumption of processed food because like that's not that's not a surprise that processed food might be correlated with hypertension and diabetes, et cetera. So and most of the sodium isn't processed food. So it's like basically the same thing. You know?
1: Yeah, it's hard to extra in and, and <laughs> the funny thing is the sodium guy hung with the, the totality of the blame. It was like, yeah, 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 processed food is bad, but it's mainly because it's sodium. It's yeah, like no, yeah. no 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 that, that's not it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, let's 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 switch gears now. Let's talk about sacred cow. Let's discuss how you came up with it because most people in the health space, they primarily focus on health, right? So some some of the folks they also talk about, well, the this whole idea that meat causes climate change is overblown and not entirely true but it's not their main point of focus um it's mostly about how can we become fitter uh, human beings etc but you decided to 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 create this documentary so you put in a lot of work like i was talking to brian sanders twice about uh, his um his documentary food lies which he still hasn't finished yet So it's a very long journey to actually create something like a movie, like a film, like a documentary and tell us how that was and how came, how you, how you came up with it. And then we could, we can dive deeper into the different, different, uh, what would you say, uh, different arguments. Kind of
1: arguments in it. Yeah. I mean, as far back as 2002, I remember talking about some of these things and this was back at a time when, um, You could be friends with somebody who had different social political leanings and you still liked each other. It was this crazy world where I had this this guy that I was dear (laughs) friends with. He was vegan and I'm I'm kind of like a middle of the road libertarian, like I'm kind of socially liberal and fiscally conservative, which I guess these days makes me. Some sort of right wing Nazi or something. I I, I don't sure. know. The world is yeah has really changed a lot. But oh yeah, he was definitely more left leaning. I was definitely compared to him more right leaning. But we would get together uh, at least once a week and go out and have drinks and just like bicker and and bust each other's balls and and talk shop. You know. And I was this paleo eating guy and that was going to destroy the planet uh, because of uh, climate change and. I was going to keel over, do a heart attack and, yeah, and yeah, tease yeah. him that he was this sarcopenic vegan that was, you know, all pie in the sky stuff. But he he made this this statement that we were misallocating. And, and there's th- these really common things. We were taking food that could be fed to humans and feeding it to animals. Mm. And like cows mainly eat grass. You know And mm. I mean? This was even back in 2002. I'm like, CAFO uh, beef spends 80% of its life, 75% of its life on grass. It's only finished with some grain products later. And oftentimes that grain product is like the leftovers from ethanol production and whatnot. Like if you really want to talk about misallocation of resources, mm. pork and chicken is kind of an argument because they spend their whole life eating soybeans and, and grains. And that's kind of a different topic. But I, I made this case to him. He was like, huh, that's actually really interesting. Like I, I, he kind of did some fact checking on it. He's like, "Ah, oh, that that's actually true. And I'm like, <laughs> He's like what about the water use you know and well the water is mainly like 80 percent like people will say cite these numbers takes 1800 gallons of water oh yeah one pound of of meat or whatever what they're citing there is that the water that falls on the grass to grow the grass is what they're citing as part of that and even again in cafo beef 94 to 90 percent, 96 percent of the water is just precipitation that grows the grass on grasslands. It's not like the water is being stolen from some other place. Whereas like in the case of almonds, the bulk of the, the uh, water that is used for producing almonds is water that is pumped out of the ground to irrigate almonds. And then 70 to 80 percent of the almonds produced in the United States are sent to China. Uh, but it's a plant-based protein. So, you you know, kind of gets this, this weird pass, but the the areas in California in particular in the United States that grow almonds, they're going to run out of groundwater, you mm -hmm. know, and it's largely driven by these almonds. But anyway, so, you know, back around 2002, I was having some discussions with, with folks about this stuff in Mm -hmm. 2006, there was this thing called the great meat debate, which was hosted by California state university, Chico, where they had some people that were kind of on the anti-meat side, and I was picked as one of the people on the pro-meat side. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the health, environmental, and ethical considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. So I've known for ages that this is an important thing, and I, I, I do think that if you're talking about health, you should think about the sourcing of your food and be honest about it you know like mm. if there if there are some downsides to it like let let's uh let's be honest about that stuff um i met diana rogers around 2008 2009 she's my co-author and the the co-producer of of the the film sacred cow mm-hmm. and she desperately wanted to make a a book initially and it, I've been good at being early on a lot of things in, in this space and sometimes too early. Like I, hmm. I had a frozen meals delivered company in 2007 uh, that was just too early. Like mm. it, it, there wasn't an, there weren't enough people interested in this stuff to, to buy into it and whatnot. And so I knew that this was going to be an important topic, but I also knew that if we launched it too early, it was never going to get any traction. And it wasn't until maybe about 2014, that I felt like there was enough of a groundswell in this ancestral health space, enough awareness about these environmental, you know, health, ethical considerations to make a book viable. And this was about the time that we started seeing these series of really successful vegan-oriented documentaries, uh, What the Health, uh, Game Changers, you know, those sorts Cowspiracy. of things. The re- Cowspiracy. Cowspiracy. Mm-hmm. And the really compelling. You know they tell yeah. a quick story. Yeah, they tell a you story. Necessarily... You know,
0: I I, I realized yeah. that they tell a bunch of stories actually. Yeah, and and that's yeah. and and that's also oftentimes it's very emotionally compelling. It's like oh my Super. gosh, look you know, look it's... what happened to that to that person. I mean, obviously you will tell a story because if if you just spit out the facts, I mean, what the hell is a layperson to do with these facts? Like this is these right. are the facts. Like yay, thanks. But here's a story that tells you how you how you can actually act you know how you can change modify your behavior yep. exactly
1: and and so we realized that we needed both the book which is the more fact based mm. thing and and really allowed us to build this pretty airtight case you know around uh, making the case that it it, it makes sense to have animal inclusive food production yep. systems for ethical, environmental and, and, uh, health reasons. And we also needed a film to be able to hit that emotional piece. And, and for people that just aren't going to sit down and read a book to be able to get the gist of Mm -hmm. what this story is, but in something that's like an hour and 20 minutes and, and, you know, short attention spans and and more of an emotive type thing. So we started working on that and, you know, we sat down and we just, we did this laundry list of assumptions, like, Mm -hmm meat consumes too much water, it misuses land, it's unethical, Uh, you would kill fewer animals with a a vegan diet than with an animal-based diet, Mm -hmm. you know, on and on and on. And we went through and just started researching that to the best of our ability. And we we had some interesting things pop up. Like one of our assumptions was that pastured meat is nutritionally superior to conventional meat. And lo and behold, when we really honestly looked at the information on that there's a little bit of a difference like an omega-3 uh fat uh, Mm -hmm. content between pastured meat and and conventional meat but one would need to eat eight pounds of pastured meat to get the same amount of omega-3s as what you get in two ounces of of
0: wild wow so it's really not significant
1: it's really not significant. Mm. Now, um, pastured dairy yeah. is shockingly more nutritious than eggs, maybe
0: dairy. what, you, what pastured do you think? eggs
1: yeah. amazingly more nutritionally dense. Uh wild caught seafood versus farm mm. seafood. But god damn it, if the, you know, it would it, you know, in these vegan films, it's awesome because it's like you're morally superior, you're gonna save the planet, yeah. you'll be skinny, you'll live like it. There's Everything. never an exception. Everything is great. Yeah. And we had this thorny fucking thing sticking out there where it's like, eh, it, you know, now conventional meat is still really, really nutritious. The, yep. the thing is, is that when you back up, conventional meat is still really nutritious, especially compared to any other food that you could eat. Hmm. But, it, you know, like the meat elitists, the people who are saying grass fed meat or nothing, they got really angry at us. Like, yep. oh, you guys are sellouts for, you know, big Big meat and all the stuff, and I'll, and look, I'll quick, share quick my comment on that.
0: Really I want think, to yeah. really want to quick comment on that because that was something that um, that uh, what would you say that 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 uh, I don't know that attracted my my attention to your work and because because it 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 has shown me that you're not part of an echo chamber. You know, you don't want to say to make an argument and to support it for the sake of uh, for the sake of making that argument because it's part of your group mentality let's say because that's part of the ideology cuz that's what that's one problem that i have with any ideology period you know that's what keto keto folks and vegan folks have in common they it's hard to make a claim that contradicts some of the most fundamental claims of that tribe let's say and if it does right. then you get attacked and you still believed in that saying the truth saying what's actually going on is more important is something that's that that you consider to be uh, to, to be more worth focusing on compared to the also which is also a good aim by the way. So if you say I want like obviously that's that's understandable that people like to belong to a group. It's it, it gives you a feeling of security. Let's say so that 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 whole side of the equation makes sense. But you are willing to pursue the truth and. Um, receive these attacks and continue to say what you believe to be true, which well well, which I found really noble.
1: Thank you. And I mean we we uh, so a little bit of background with that. When mm-hmm. Diana and, ar- and I arrived at this thing, we were literally like shit. Yeah. Like what do we do with this? You know, we know that this is gonna be uh we knew that it was gonna raise a stink with the the kind of meat elitist the the are ironically supposed to be part of the tribe that we're catering to but we knew that there was going to be this backlash so we hired this this guy who's a phd in nutritional biochemistry and we just told him hey we want you to do a thorough compare contrast of the nutritional characteristics of conventional versus pastured meat didn't give him any of our information just had him go off and, Mm. and and do his own thing and he arrived at exactly the same numbers that we did and so we we third party verified it and then I sat there wondering about it. I'm like, maybe we just lie. Like, let, let's just yeah. whitewash this thing and, yeah. and, you know, lie about it. Because then we have this, like, contiguous story and everything. But the the thing about that is it, like, when the What the Health movie came out, like, whenever these, these vegan documentaries come out, there's a group of us, like, Mark Sisson, Chris Crasser, myself, some other people. Like... Rock paper scissors, and whoever loses gets to write an article on the the film at the time, and so I got the What the Health one, and there were all these claims, you know, like they they would go through, and 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 I have a, a blog post, uh, a What the Health, a, a Wolf's Eye View, and I go through literally minute by wow. minute. Here's the claim. Here's the data that they they supported. Here's what it actually says, and it really does affect people. Not everybody buys into that, but like I had hundreds of points where I'm like, they said this and the research actually said this. And I didn't mm. want a single example of that in the book. And so we, we, we had this piece that it's like, Conventional dairy is less nutritious, uh, while, uh, conventional, you know, fit or, you know, farmed fish, uh, eggs, not as good. There are ethical considerations or environmental considerations that are better on the pastured side, but for nutrition alone, it's not that big of a deal. Mm. And the interesting thing is when you poke around the interwebs, there are no like, you, you know, 20 page takedowns of our book and film. Yeah. There, nobody has gone in and said they're wrong about this. They made this claim here. They, Nothing like that exists. And I think that that's because we were actually honest and really brutally careful with the, mm. the treatment of the material. And I think in some ways, the, the more vegan-leaning folks haven't said anything about the book. Like there's no slam pe- Funny enough, the only cranky pieces that we get are folks who are in the pasture oh, no. meat industry. They're literally the only ones that have had anything cranky to say about this. And I think it's because we did a good a good enough job on the science that, like, the the vegan folks were like, oh, we don't even want to shine a light on this. We don't even want people looking at it because we make a really sound argument. Mm. And, like, the the ethics piece flows into the health piece, flows into the environmental piece in this really pretty seamless fashion. And when people get to the mm-hmm. end of that, they're kind of like, oh, shit, like, my worldview has probably changed as a consequence of, of experiencing this thing. So, I mean, we, we put... I, I worked harder on that than I've worked on any other sure. uh, project. Like, like uh, mm. th- th- that was... Compared to my first two books, that was three books worth of work to do yeah. Sacred Cow and the film, for sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I think... Well, first of all, I think not only... Like, I obviously appreciate uh, your effort. And even... Like, <laughs> I think we all would have love the idea that pasture raised meat is better than conventionally raised meat i mean it's just nutritionally like from a nutritional perspective i mean it would have been a great story right but you were still willing to say right. well look no i'm more interested in saying what is what is true what is in accordance with with scientific research etc and that's what i think many people appreciated about um about your work and i think f- from many perspe- perspective that's a good idea first of all for your for your own, um, what would you say? For your own, own
1: just integrity, on, you know. Yeah, yeah, for your
0: own integrity. Like it's hard to get away with it. Not only because the, uh, people will pick up pick you for these mistakes and say, "Hey," you, and you become a less trustworthy source of information because of that. Right. But only for, also for right. yourself. Like, can you live with the idea of you having you know made a whole documentary, a whole you know this Great amount of work based on false presumptions, you know. So um, okay, but but next question I have on the documentary is the title. So you named it "Sacred mm-hmm. Cow," and "sacred" implied implies something something not just not negative, but actually something really really positive. And if you look at the messaging that's going on as far as meat is concerned, I mean it's it's uh, it's unambiguously negative. From all perspectives on all levels it's bad for your health, it's bad ethically, it's bad for the environment. it's like bad on all fronts. it's like it's toxic masculine it's everything politically even right. like right. even politics is being lumped into that. but do you tried as far like I un- what I understand and you you made a quick st- statement on your main argument is basically from an ethical uh, environmental and health perspective, it's not not only is it not negative, it's actually a positive contributor to, to all these things. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, 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 it, you know, when we started the book, we thought that it was going to be – we thought we would start with ethics. Mm-hmm. And we actually, as we started digging into it, what was interesting, what emerged out of that is when we were looking at the health piece, particularly children – pregnancies, fetus in utero, you know, all the breastfeeding, all that stuff. What we found is that it was devilishly hard, like virtually impossible to grow a human absent any animal products, you know, and, and have it be successful. Like the the rates of vitamin deficiencies, uh developmental milestones missed in vegan and vegetarian uh, children is is stunning, mm-hmm. and it's very easy to access this this material, but it's it's not it's not well circulated, you know. And so, when we started looking at that, we were like, "Well, shoot!" And, and then there's this this other piece, like talking about kind of social justice stuff. There are mm. tens of millions of women around the world. That are not allowed to own land, hmm. but they are allowed to own livestock, like within hmm. the, the cultures that they live in. That's and that is their sole means of financial and economic support. It's how they support their families. It's how they support their communities and whatnot. And so these mainly white, fairly wealthy Western individuals are saying that these women who own livestock are destroying the planet and they're unethical, terrible people. And it was like, my God, like how much privilege are you operating wow. from in this, you know? Wow. So when we, it, it, and I have to give a lot of hat tips to to Diana. She did a lot of the research on that side of, of the house. But when we really looked at the the reality, or let's say the supposition that it's very difficult to grow a healthy human absent animal products, and, and when you look at, what happens to kids if they don't get adequate iron and B vitamins and zinc and whatnot? Their brain doesn't develop properly. Yeah. There, there can be a, a twenty point IQ difference between a well-fed child and an underfed child. All other things being equal, that that is massive. You know, I mean, and so and also some less appreciated
0: nutrients like choline. Like I looked some some literature Absolutely. up on that, and it's 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 it's, it's mind blowing. Like no one talks, no one ever talks about choline being something worth. Uh, with whatever considering you know right
1: and, and there are no good vegan sources unless no, you know no like some sort of a a, a soy um iso isofla- or not isoflavone but but like a uh the the emulsifying stuff mm. out of soy which is not a bad item but i mean it, it, this again circles back around to Okay, if you live in a westernized society and you've got a Walgreens or some some store or Amazon that you can order this stuff from, that's great. Mm. But you have hundreds of millions of people in in developing areas that don't have the luxury of ordering this, you know, fairly expensive, you know, setup of of uh, supplements to to just deal with their baseline. And it's also pretty clear from the literature that supplements aren't actually food. They don't work the same way. They don't, they don't fix the problem in the same way. So that was, that was interesting. And then when we started looking at the environmental side of this thing, what was fascinating is you can't actually figure out how to make a global food system work indefinitely without animals. Because our industrialized mm. food system right now is reliant on the Haber-Bosch process of taking atmospheric nitrogen, turning it into ammonia, and then that being used as a a uh, synthetic chemical fertilizer. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly efficient. It, it does consume a massive amount of, of energy. But, my goodness, the amount of food we've been able to make with that is incredible. But it is also destroying our topsoil. Mm-hmm. Because of the 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 super refined nature of those products and the synthetic nature we are losing topsoil around the world at this remarkable rate and this was another another thing that would have played to our favor there was some meme that had gone around that we have 60 harvests left and then in 60 harvests we're going to be out of topsoil and we looked and we looked and we looked and we looked and we couldn't the only resource that we could find linking this back was a discussion at the uh uh it wasn't nato it wasn't the world health organization but it was something like that but a woman offhand said we have about 60 harvests left and this got picked up and put into scientific oh, journals wow. and into media and all this stuff now we will run out of topsoil if we don't do something different mm-hmm. and the something different is that we have to integrate animals into the food system and this is also where the purely pasture-based thing is a little bit overly idealistic because, like, if you have a, a corn farm or, or you know, cornfield or a wheat field or a soybean field, what is a great thing to do is after you've harvested those those items to allow grazing animals to go through and clean up all the crop residue because they upcycle the nutrients. Yeah, they pee and poo on the on the soil, returning nutrients and possibly more importantly, they reestablish the microbiome of the soil which is how we start creating more soil. The way that soil is created is the carbon that is pulled out of the atmosphere goes in part to the part of the plant that's above ground. But in part, the plant pushes sugars below ground to feed bacteria and fungi that mine minerals out of the soil, and it creates a carbon matrix that becomes soil. Mm. And without that, we lose all of our our topsoil. So you know, we have this health thing where it's like, okay, it's arguable that, you know, people can push back on this, but this, but the position that we made, and I think Mm -hmm. it's very defensible is it's super difficult to raise a human being adequately without animal products. And then there are these problems of like, if you don't eat adequate protein, you tend to overeat like optimum foraging strategy and the protein leverage hypothesis. And, you know, uh, fewer than 7% of people in the United States are metabolically healthy because they overeat processed food eating adequate protein is one of the best levers we have towards Absolutely. preventing that. So you right. know it it, it it starts becoming this kind of like tsunami effect of of an argument for animal products and then you look at the just the environmental part, they're definitely concerning features to the environmental, you know, elements of animal husbandry, but like the methane story is not really the the true story that we're told, the water consumption story, the land use mm. story. And nobody ever mentions that we have to have grazing animals interface with these lands to be able to re- to create more topsoil. You have mm. to do that. And Diana told the story of a, a vegan family that decided that they wanted to run a farm and raise their own food and they started doing that. And what they found is that they were in this really tough spot where if they – within a couple of years, they had basically extracted all the a, a disproportionate amount of nutrients out of the soil mm. because you have to replace them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So how do you put them back in? Well, the organic way to put it back in is to take fish meal, basically fish that is caught, harvested, processed, and <sighs> put on the land, which seems crazy to me when you're talking about carbon footprints yeah. and, and – you know, it, it, like wasted nutrition is like, why is that not Jesus. being fed to humans? You know, I, I, it's just mind blowing. Oh, boy. They didn't like that. And and they didn't like the idea of using synthetic chemical fertilizers. So then they said, well, we'll bring some grazing animals in <laughs> to play that role. But we just won't. Right. There. So they brought the grazing animals in. And then they were kind of like, well, we're in this weird spot where we would be better off if we could you know, raise some of these animals. So basically the family ended up switching from vegan to a, a, a local nutrivor type diet where they raised yeah. and slaughtered their, their own animals. And ironically, when, when Diana was partway through getting the story from those folks, the farm that they are, funded by this this vegan outfit and the vegan outfit said if you keep talking to this woman <laughs> we're gonna pull funding on you and so it kind of disappeared but it was an example in a microcosm of these folks trying to run an, an animal-less food production system and they immediately discovered that this just doesn't work you know and then we wow. we broke down like the the things with like lab-grown meat and all the energy inputs and you still have to grow row crops to produce the raw materials to stick into the lab-grown meat and everything mm. and so when we did all of that stuff what was interesting we thought we were going to lead with the ethical consideration mm-hmm. but we found the health part was really interesting and had ethical parts yeah we looked at the environmental piece and it wasn't as as you know simple as kind of the the vegan model of things that just animal products bad and and you know it's actually like, well it, we have examples, of, like in, in uh, uh, the UK, of ranches and farms that have a history of ownership for 2,000 years. Mm. And they've been running grass-fed animals yeah. on these things. And they're still there. And the soil is still good. And you know, that's that's you know, one
0: characteristic know. of an ideology that is overly simplistic. This is the model. And, like, accept it or else. And what I right. find so, I don't know, it's so... It seems if you just think about it it's so reprehensible to, to watch like what these folks are doing because you know it's so imagine like how ignorant and arrogant that actually is like for all the course of evolution and history it's been this way you had this interplay between animals and plants and this whole system was working and it took it took nature like i don't know how many millions billions of years to figure out basically um you know you you know what i mean to figure out how this should work and how to find the optimal balance so that animals can thrive and plants can thrive. And now we, like all these 18-year-olds climate act- activists, they just position themselves as all um, omniscient creatures that have all the answers. I mean, how unbelievably ignorant can you be? Man.
1: It Well, and <laughs> you know, like parts of Europe are going to experience – Sri Lanka is experiencing some of right. like this. Like they – Went from being uh, go- the fastest uh, population, the fastest country that was heading from developed nation to like second, you know, uh, almost first, first world status, and and it, it, their economy is cratered, their food production is cratered. They were exporting food. You know, the Netherlands is is facing all these yeah, really onerous challenges on on food production. And what what sucks is that this do-gooder mentality around the environment is going to cause people to starve to death. It's going to cause people some enormous suffering.
0: It's crazy. And I think then it's like so the crazy. adults
1: are going to re-enter the room. It is crazy. It's crazy but, because um, almost
0: like so many European governments position themselves as left-leaning and liberal and for the poor, for the op- oppressed, whatever that means. But then their measures... Are precisely the ones that will lead to the starvation of those who already are in very the harsh condi- conditions. Yeah, the very <laughs> sick and poor people. Like you will doom those folks first, because in every epidemic, in every uh, what, uh, uh, if if there is uh, if there is, um, if like if if you if you, have, if you lower production of food, if there is le- less production of of food, like in Netherlands for example, if energy costs rise, like all of these things, if that happens you first doom the poor people. Those who have it worst. And like how a left, a allegedly left-leaning government can support these measures. I don't know. That's a big mystery to me. <laughs>
1: I don't want to overly politicize this. So <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. You're right. But I will throw out there, history has seen this before. Yeah. Like these, these very Marxist-leaning governments and kind of bourgeoisie intellectuals think they understand the way the world works and unfortunately Mm. they don't and and the the irony is that it's always like we're doing this for the poor we're doing this for the oppressed and it is the poor and the oppressed who suffer the 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 worst when these these poor policies are put into place i have a a dear friend whose family escaped the khmer rouge in Mm. in cambodia during that time and um my God, the stories that that uh, he's been able to to share with me. And it was very, very similar, just a abject destruction of the infrastructure there and terrible decisions around food production, mm. energy infrastructure, and whatnot. And it's horrible. yeah, you know, it's it's horrible. but it, you know it so when we looked at these these pieces, then when yeah. we looked back at the ethical part, yeah, let's go back, let's go back question, to the movie. Well,
0: Leave the political side because that's for another conversation.
1: Yeah, and the book honestly probably makes this case better Mm -hmm. because it's in such a a stepwise fashion. But Mm -hmm. then when we circle back around to the ethics, we ask this question, is a vegan diet a bloodless diet? And it's not. Like lots and lots of animals, lots of ecosystems are, are killed and destroyed in the process of producing row crops. And they're are interesting examples where holistically managed grazing animals on grasslands and two thirds of the earth's landmass are grasslands. They're amenable to nothing other than growing Mm -hmm. grass. And for them to be healthy, they have to have grazing animals on them, (laughs) interacting with them. Um, This was, uh, you know, it became this really closed loop piece. I've even been seeing some fascinating stuff uh, where the, some people in Siberia are, Noodling on the idea of introducing more grazing animals there, and and even trying to reintroduce uh, uh, mammoth or or hybridizing mammoth genes into elephant genes, because and this was so interesting, and this is the beauty of natural systems that you get, unlike man-made systems which can be really cool and can be very beneficial but these natural systems when you get a benefit it's not just in one place it tends to be on multiple levels in multiple directions but when animals in the winter dig through the snow to get to forage what they're doing one of the big concerns around climate change right now is that the permafrost will will thaw out yep. and it'll get these huge releases of of methane and, and other uh, carbon-based compounds which could potentially be pretty bad <laughs> but ironically what happens in areas where there are lots of grazing animals the animals will move the snow to get to the forage and when they move the snow the snow is an insulating blanket between mm. the earth and the colder atmosphere when in the areas that that the uh, the the areas being grazed even under the snow the permafrost freezes deeper than in the areas that don't have adequate grazing animals. Mm. And apparently this was a a major feature of, of, uh, the mastodon where it was huge and it could really get a lot of snow moved and break down trees and all this type of stuff. So this is another part of this thing where this Disney view of food and energy and nature could doom us or it, it may not doom us, but it, it's going to cause a lot of problems. Whereas the, you know, developing vibrant ecosystems with grazing animals that we do eat, but we do it in a responsible way. Mm. And, and we, we have smart management and everything. It produces food. It may be a mitigating factor in climate change in multiple directions. Like mm. in, in Arctic areas, it may end up preventing the the thawing of the, the permafrost. Uh, it and it, it'll, it'll remind me to loop back to the uh, the like methane emissions and, and carbon emissions from living animals here in a mm-hmm. second, but it the, it fosters the um, the deepening of roots in grasslands to to create topsoil, which is a se- carbon sequestration yeah. process. And again, this is where uh, it, you know when people say, well, you know, uh, cows belch methane and and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. The methane molecule is a carbon molecule with four hydrogens stuck to it. That carbon molecule was in the atmosphere days, weeks, or months earlier before it became part of a plant. And then Mm -hmm. the plant was eaten by an animal. And then the animal releases it either through defecation, urination, uh, breathing out carbon dioxide, or through methane release. And methane only lasts in the atmosphere about 10 years. And then it gets degraded into carbon dioxide and water. And it is part of a closed loop carbon cycle. Yeah. It goes out, it comes in, it goes out, it comes in. So you simply cannot, uh, when you're doing accounting, you can't look at the carbon emissions of natural systems the same way. If you, it, And what's interesting is you ask people, well, are termites a problem? Because termites produce massive amounts of methane. <laughs> Nobody re- really was concerned about termites, but now – because we've developed what, what Diane and I have been calling a carbon tunnel vision some people are suggesting maybe we should eradicate termites oh no when it was
0: discovered that shellfish produce huge amounts of methane maybe we should eradicate shellfish the funny thing is All that it's not this, dependent on the number of animals cuz even if you have more animals there is more carbon circulating but the number of it's molecules doesn't cycle change. yes
1: that's yes. so funny it, it, because it,
0: one one major argument for me was Look, the total number of ruminant animals hasn't really changed over the past couple hundred years, let's say. It, the the proportion of conventionally raised animals in comparison to wild um, ruminant animals maybe has shifted towards more conventional and less wild animals. But the total number m- maybe even decreased slightly. But that even doesn't matter, you know? Because, like, the number of animals doesn't matter. The number of molecules that circulate is the same. But, however, if we take... If we take carbon and we generate, uh, if we if we generate carbon dioxide by burning fossil fuels, like the transport sector, that makes sense. It's like that's carbon that hasn't been in the air prior. Exactly, and the funny thing,
1: <laughs> so there are there are projects where, you know, in theory we would use like windmills and solar panels to uh, run these things that will pull carbon dioxide out of the air and mm-hmm. liquefy it and then pump it underground and all this stuff. <laughs> it's massively energy intensive. And, and uh, when Boy. I've looked at the life cycle analysis, it produces more carbon dioxide than it sequesters Great. every single time, you know, but Great. but people are all kind of starry eyed and pie in the sky about this technology piece. Technology has become such a central feature of our lives and because over the last like 20 years the smartest people in the world have gone into tech mm. they these smart people who are usually right about most things assume that they're right about everything but these people don't know about mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. dynamic system the ironic thing here is possibly the greatest tool we have to fight climate change because we could sequester carbon underground and And you know, we could mitigate other elements of climate change and water erosion and on and on and on. Are these grazing animals yep. are the very thing that is like the the primary focus of this vitriol towards wow. the animal husbandry sector? so it's um, it's a fascinating thing, but it it's a scenario in which possibly, maybe Diana and I are wrong. Maybe we're completely wrong. But it's possible that literally every recommendation that is being made, towards climate mitigation is just flat ass wrong, wow. like 180 degrees wrong, particularly as it as it relates to these to these animals, I would say most of the energy infrastructure investigation is wrong, too. But that's a whole whole, other yeah. you know, topic <laughs> to, hole, to get yeah. into. And again, maybe we are wrong, but I haven't seen anybody come in and substant like all that they do is they keep parroting the same things. Mm. Takes too much water, releases carbon. They don't actually look at the analysis that we've done mm-hmm, and say, mm-hmm. "Well, here's where you got your numbers wrong," you know. And, and in the film, we actually do a better job of showing this. In the film, mm-hmm. uh, Diana talks about a rancher who is in, a, a native to Mexico. He has a, a massive ranch out in the Chihuahuan desert and he started doing holistic management of animals eight, 10 years ago. And this is an area that is desertified horribly. Like it's, mm. it's a sagebrush cactus and arroyos of just erosion because it doesn't get much water there. When it does rain, it rains like crazy and the topsoil gets washed away because all the perennial grasses are gone in most of the areas. But you get to this area where this guy has been doing the ranching and you're driving, 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 drive like five hours to get out to this area. And on the horizon, you see what looks like a tidal wave. Hmm. You know, it looks like the ocean coming in. And what it is, is chest high perennial grasses in an area that people who have lived there for five generations didn't know that grass grew. Mm -hmm. but he's been he's been moving these these animals in this area so this is another angle on mitigating climate change which there is no other tool for mitigating desertification the conversion of arable land into desert which is a massive heat footprint because you know like there there are great examples where if you have a a well um a well An area that has good grass coverage, let's say it's like an 85, 90 degree Fahrenheit day, Mm. and you do a temperature probe on an area that has grass on it, the surface of the ground is like 100 degrees, 80, Mm. you know, 95, 100 degrees. If it is fairly barren, it'll be 135 to 140 degrees. So when you are able to reestablish grasslands in these desertified areas, particularly near you know, like tropical and equatorial areas, you are massively decreasing the heat footprint of yep. these areas, which contributes to, cl- to global warming. So there's, it produces food. It produces local economies. It produces jobs. It produces independence. Uh, it's not catering to multinational food corporations and whatnot. And uh, the, the flip side is, you know, like Planet of the Vegans, you know, row crops as far as the eye can see. That is the flip inverse of this. Mm. A few companies own all the intellectual property around that. What they are suggesting is that everybody on the planet should only eat the food that's being produced in like, the United States and Europe. And now parts of Europe are saying, well, we're not going to produce that much more food anymore. So the people are dependent on us. I don't know what what you're going to eat. And interestingly, one of the main places that we've seen – organized political pushback on this agenda
0: Hmm. is in
1: developing countries where they're like we don't want to be dependent on you for food and we're not going to abandon our traditional food ways and and uh, what's interesting is i think that this change towards holistic management is highly likely to happen in the developed world first and only later will happen in the united states and europe because of political and and you know kind of social inertia that's kind of pushing the other direction
0: you know it all this all strikes me as well as well first of all it's very fascinating because you you're telling me a bunch of facts that like some of them i knew about them before like this whole green water and the carbon cycle Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you point out the significance of these things and the complexity like animals walking around on this thermofrost thingy and that this somehow can save us or contribute to the amelioration of climate change. Like, you know, there's so many things we didn't even take into account. Like, what do we even know? We're so unbelievably ignorant. And that's why I think if we interfere too much with these natural cycles and these biological systems, then there is just too much potential for harm, too much potential for unintended consequences because it's so complex. And we haven't figured it all out. Even you guys, like you're doing a great job, but sorry to disappoint you. It's way too complex. Like I'm even more ignorant than you are, but it's so, it's so complex that the best bet we have is just to support the biological system. I think there is the least amount of harm you can do with that
1: approach. Absolutely. And, you know, if people push back on that notion of complexity, like how often do the economists say... We've got no problems. And then 2008, <laughs> it, it happens and we nearly have a global financial implosion. And I, I forget if it was Volcker or I think it was Volcker who, weeks before the 2008 financial implosion, he had this classic line where he said, We have offloaded risk. And it's like, No, we haven't. Like, it, this is a system that you guys think you're in charge of. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, um, it's funny. There are these physicists that model the action of sand falling in piles. And that's how they model like economies and, yeah. and ecological systems. You know, what the, literally the one sand green that causes all the, the whole thing to collapse and whatnot. And this hubris of assuming that we understand this stuff mm-hmm. at, at a particularly good level is so dangerous. And it, the, another Big part to this. And again, if you're concerned about like social justice stuff and like cultural appropriation and all these sorts of things, what's being suggested is that everybody in the world should dance to the same set of music that mainly white Northern European folks in the United States and, and Europe are suggesting. And it, it's like that, that's not hubris in and of itself. Like no. that's not uh, ignoring the the integrity and the sovereignty of these local food systems and whatnot and how dangerous that is to have all of that tied up in, in uh, the intellectual property. There's like six companies that produce 95% of the food eaten globally. Mm. It, it, it's in, wow. incredible. And I know things ca- pop up, you know, like, uh, well, what about the Amazon rainforest and, and cows down there? Well, They don't clear rainforest for cows. They Mm. use cows to clear the rainforest. So they'll clear cut it, get the money out of the lumber. Then they put cows through that area to take it down to bare ground. And then they plant soybeans. The climax species is cow, it's soybeans. Yeah. So, you know, and, and this is stuff that people will fight and push back on and everything. But it's like, no, here's the data on this. Like this doesn't ultimately end up being grazing land. They move the cows around as they clear more more area and that's a whole interesting thing too europe and north america went through their phase of development and there was a lot of environmental change a lot of environmental damage but this is an interesting ethical question should the developing country be doomed to never develop because we think we know what's right about climate change like we know how their economies should be run and how their resources should be allocated and all, all the rest of that. It. Like, it, it's just, yeah. it's remarkable. Yeah, we uh, seem to be uh, doing
0: that, though, you know, because yeah. they they don't have enough access to, um, to what, to gas, oil and coal. They still burn wood and stuff. Right. And it's like, right. that's not a good uh, a good precedent for a booming economy. And that's definitely not good for the carbon footprint. If we continue to burn wood, that's what the Germans are doing, by the way, right now, piling up wood, you know. <laughs> Because we have no coal, we're against coal, we're against nuclear, for bizarre reasons, right. which is like preposterous beyond any, any any belief, and then- It is possibly the craziest belief of all yeah, of Yeah, what us, the fuck? Like, out of any of them. Absolutely. It's so straightforward. it's so yeah. It's so ridiculous. And then we're against nuclear, we're against coal, we have no gas anymore, because of the whole Russia thing, and now right. what else is left? Like, energy do, prices do you know are through the, the roof. So it's. it's... Do, you, do you know where the bulk of the wood is coming from? Well, that's a good question.
1: North America. <laughs> Funny. Trees are cut down in Canada and the United States, turned into wood chips, sent to, to um, Germany, and they're burned there at a massively less efficient uh, carbon footprint yeah. than coal. Coal is actually much more yeah, carbon uh, uh, footprint efficient than, than the wood is. The wood is portrayed as being carbon neutral because it's part of the cycle. But the thing is, is you have to cut it, process it, ship it, mm. and then it's no longer carbon neutral because of all the energy inputs put into that. Whereas coal is actually much more efficient, even though it is net taking carbon from underground and releasing it in the atmosphere.
0: Interesting. But Interesting. Holy smokes. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I really don't know what's going on. But last question before we wrap up. Um, it's, it's hard. <laughs> like, I'm a very optimistic person, and you seem also to be a person that's very much... Um, very much op- optimistic and has a positive attitude, but things are not going in a good direction right now. You know, so especially let's maybe let's not talk about all these things. Let's not not lump them all, to, all together, but specifically on the topic of um, like what we discussed today, the impact of meat on health and environment. Like the agenda is even stronger, especially here in Europe. Like I don't know, like this. I, I still follow many folks. Most of them are from the U.S. And it's still a thing, but here it's now, it's, it's a thing, it's a way more a thing over here. So it starts, most of the, most of the what would you say, the trends, they start in the US and then they come over to Europe and now they're really mm-hmm. booming over here. So like veganism, it's really a thing here. Um, how, like, what's your next project? How, how do you, that's question number one. What are you working on right now? Is there anything you're working on right now? And then question number two is, what do you think is the most effective way to communicate that to other people? Because silencing other people is certainly the wrong approach. Shouting at right. them is the wrong approach. Polarization is the wrong approach. Calling them names and uh, ridiculing their arguments is the wrong approach. So, it's 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 difficult. What what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, you, you know, the the main thing I'm working on at this point is trying to support people in this local Northern Montana area in the regenerative ag process. Mm. Um, I think at the end of the day, like, like being on being able to be on a podcast with you, you know, somebody on, on a different continent and, you, you know, and, and share some ideas and and pressure test the ideas is fantastic. But mm-hmm. I think that the way that this is going to move forward, we will go back to a more local based, story, it you know, with food production, with food consumption. I think more of our food needs to be produced and consumed at a local level. And so yeah. I'm really working to facilitate that stuff locally. And I think other people will eventually as well. And I think that that is the um, the hopeful light here is that some reality will come to bear on all this stuff. Like we, we, we can't sooner later. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you know, an airplane flying, Flies not because gravity doesn't exist. It flies due to aerodynamics and the fact that there's energy being put into it. And if the energy cuts off, it's either a glider or it's a, (laughs) it's a (laughs) ballistic missile at that point, you know, and and it's got a, got an expiration date on it. And so a bunch of these goofy ideas, the bummer is that a lot of people are going to be hurt. You know, there's going to be a lot of suffering. There's going to be a lot of people hurt, but the world operates in cycles seemingly and I think that we're going through one of these these uh, cycles of of change. And I think that a good that will come out of this on the back end is that we will be more focused at the local level at our local community and whatnot. And so mm. that's what I'm really focusing on. And it's also the thing that I'm really optimistic about. And it's mm. not that we won't travel internationally. It's not that there won't be social media and we won't be, you know connected to some degree virtually, but I, I think that more of our, Legit community interactions, food and whatnot will happen at a at a more local level like it just kind of has to the economics mm. of, of things have to kind of go that direction. Again, my, my hope has always been that we would be able to do that in a, uh, a prescient Proactive way to avoid a lot of suffering. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's going to be some upheaval and some some skint knees, you know, uh, tripping and falling here and there. But mm-hmm. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to turn the corner and make this stuff work.
0: Yeah. And uh, what are you? Yeah. What do you think? What are your thoughts on um, education? So, how do we talk to people about these sorts of things? Because it's so polarizing. Oh, it's so emotional. It. Yeah. Like, how how on earth would you be? Would we be able to mediate between? between those two views or those all all the sides because so first of all it's really complicated and then it's so it it, there is already a very stark radicalization and polarization going on
1: yeah it's it's interesting like usually um asymmetric warfare happens you know like when the United States was in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and you have mm. these small cells that are able to to use small amounts of energy and infrastructure to really disrupt this bigger entity. There's an asymmetric war in this story, but the the, the vegans, you know, big government, big pharma, they have all the money. They have the infrastructure, they have the narrative. It's just that it's so thermodynamically wrong. It's so contrary to nature that it's going to end up failing. I see. But every but the but they, you know, you and I have been talking for oh, you know, about an hour. Yeah. And we barely scratch the surface of this stuff. Absolutely. Right? You know, I mean barely scratch the surface of it. Whereas somebody supporting this kind of like planet of the vegan agenda, they just say meat causes cancer, mm. meat's unethical. It destroys the planet, and if you were vegan, you'll you'll live forever. And it sounds great. They've got some scientific studies that look pretty good on the surface, and it's really an asymmetric... That's a compelling story, you know. ...a fair kind of deal. It's super compelling. And the story that you and I have is one of complexity and one that's fairly counterintuitive. Uh, it doesn't cater to this, this like... Um, la la land tech idea (laughs) that like technology is just going to come in and save us technology is great like uh, one of the cool things that will happen is people doing uh, pasture-based grazing will use satellite imagery and drones to look at the 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 vegetation on their land to better inform what they graze and Mm -hmm. under what time schedule and that will improve efficiency and that'll that'll be fantastic but it's still operationally is going to look like a a farm that was uh, operating in the 1600s. You know, I mean, it's like cows, chickens, pigs, you know, Mm. operationally it's not really going to be that much different, but the education piece, I, you know, definitely we have to be kind. We have to be thoughtful. We have to be patient. Uh, You have to allocate resources into the people that are at least Questioning things, you know. There, there there are folks that are so far gone. I used to hear this thing all the time. It's like, how do you convince a a vegan person to to incorporate meat back in their diet? I'm like, I feel like that's just a waste of time. There, there are always people who are just needing help and interested in this stuff. And we should definitely put the effort into the people that are all have already like questioned things a little bit. Like they're thinking about taking the red pill. They're already kind Mm. of looking at these these other options and, and we put some effort into that and we be honest and don't tell lies don't tell bullshit don't, don't do things that give us a, a gotcha which is why I didn't say that passionate meat is you know conventional meat is superior to uh, passionate meat in, in all ways because those gotchas completely destroy credibility right yeah. Right now I have people that don't like me that don't enjoy the message that I have but it, 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 all that they do is keep citing the same tired questions you know land use water use methane it's like i got the answer to that like address what i've got here and show me where it's wrong and they don't and when they don't then the people who are on the periphery looking at that they're like huh that's interesting like you know there's something interesting going on there and then if those folks get in and really look at this stuff and my goodness like just going and spending time on a a farmer oh yeah and seeing how shit
0: really works
1: that'll open your eyes a lot to yeah. this, to this stuff
0: you know yeah so yeah. many seem to be disconnected from the reality from the biological Absolutely. reality it's 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 yep. a, it's a, it's a, so it's such a profound experience to be on a farm to see the animals maybe touch the animals to see how they the interplay between nature and and plants and animals and it's just it's 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 just in some, to some degree, it's 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 over, overwhelming to watch because you see, oh my, oh my God, I I really don't have all the answers. Like, oh, how beautiful that whole thing is.
1: Well, and I think that what happens is our own mortality gets put in front of us mm-hmm. when you start understanding the cycle of life and death, and that life cannot exist without death. Yeah, I, Diana really spearheaded this part of the book and the film, talking about this, but. We've become so disconnected from the the birth, life, death process, both with humans and everything else around us, that I think that there's a, this veganism is this kind of infantilized view of the world <laughs> that will somehow live forever and everything will live forever. Yeah, and that that's actually antithetical to life, and that's a gut check. Like that's this big. Existential void to to deal with, and most people don't have a religious faith anymore. I don't, and it, yeah. it, it hurts sometimes. You know, yeah. like I've had friends and family members that die, and I face my own mortality, and I think about never seeing my girls again and stuff like that, mm. and them never seeing me, and it sucks. And you know, like when I hunt and I, I take an animal's life, there's there's like this understanding there. It's like at some point that's going to be me in some form or fashion. Yeah, and i think that there's a, you there's some discomfort with that that's tough and i think that that's another piece of this conversation that will eventually be addressed to some degree but i think that that's a lot of what people are running from like yeah. i think that the like the the buddhist idea of ahimsa like trying to minimize suffering is great but that can be taken to a childish extreme that uh, it, you know it's like uh somebody on life support and a ventilator and their, their, their their quality of life is terrible, but we're just going to keep them going because we can, it's like, is that really, is that really doing anybody, you know, favors and, and Mm -hmm. assuming that we can have a global food system absent death is just impossible. And it's also a gut check to, to deal with that.
0: Yeah. Um, well, without diving too deep into that, I think that's a not maybe not the best place to stop, but it's a good place to close. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. yeah, it's it's not the most positive note, but it's 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 something to think about. It's you know? real. It's, it's real. Yeah, like it's yeah. real, and it's really something to consider. It's really something to think about. It's 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 not it's not a utopian vision. It's reality. It's like look, this is how things are going, and you rather, um, yeah, you rather, you rather, um, pay attention to that. You know, don't run away from that.
1: If nothing else, it will make you appreciate everything that we have, I think, at a profound
0: level. Right. So, Rob, I really appreciate your work. I really appreciate you coming on. It's a really great honor to um, have spent, you know, more than an hour discussing these issues with you. And um, the last word is, the last question is, tell people how they can find you. Tell them how they can find more about what you do, about your books, about your social media and where they can support um support you and spread the word
1: great yeah Uh, robwolf.com is kind of the main spot that i hang out at my Mm -hmm. wife and i do a weekly podcast called the healthy rebellion radio where we answer questions and if people have health environmental other you know training questions they can submit that I, i i love the the more breadth and depth on that that we can get uh I do virtually nothing on social media now. Um, I, I have, I have accounts, but like I will post things, but I never look at it again. Like social media has become such a, a toxic scene. I do, and it's really a bummer. I used to enjoy interfacing with people there. I do a little bit on Twitter. Um, I'm Rob Wolf on R O B W O L F on Twitter. I found that Twitter, there's some degree of decorum there and some ability to like get a, a cogent thought out, and so I do. That really is me, and I really do do some stuff on Twitter. So that if you want to track me down, that's a decent place.
0: Well, then I even more appreciate you answering me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> that was a rare thing. That was an absolutely fluke, flukish thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. when I when I think about it from that perspective, it's like, hmm, good, good, good for me then. You know, when you when time. you rarely I mean, ever yeah. spend time on Instagram. Okay. Um, again, f- thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for coming on. It's been. It's been great. It's been great chatting with you. I, I'm really happy that we can bring this conversation forward. You know, maybe that's it's it's you know it's like my attempt to contribute to this discussion because it's like a discussion that has to be had. These are conversation conversations that have to happen. Because um, if they don't, then the the worst thing, maybe the most likely thing to happen, is that the 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 model will fail. We'll suffer all the consequences, and it's like well yeah, maybe that's even the most likely things, thing to happen by but I don't know if I would like the whole thing to fail and everyone to suffer. So I'll try to push back and you you're also doing the same thing, so yeah. Let's I, I see. think that's
1: worthy worthy work to keep us busy the rest of our lives. Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to not
0: make things collapse. That's a good yeah. endeavor.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. It was a huge honor being on the show. Really really enjoyed it. All right, perfect. Talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye.